958. So just to let you know, um, the topic today is how to incorporate modern dance into your prayer life. <laughs> this is the wrong session. Uh, I won't judge you for leaving, but I do need to clear out a little bit more space because we're going to take some volunteers. <laughs> all right, well, getting everybody all warmed up. Well, no one's coming? All right. I can use some extra time. If I do have some extra time, I'll fill some questions. So I got until, what, 1230? <laughs> no, it is 50? Okay. 1050. All right. So we'll go ahead and go. Let me go ahead and pray. Well, Father, I do thank you for this time to get together and talk about this important topic. Um, I pray that just the knowledge of your sovereignty, your omnipotence, and your ability won't deter our prayer life, but enhance it. Uh, give me the words to speak, give me clarity of mind, and I just pray that this will be truly helpful to my brothers and sisters here. In Christ's name, amen. So I imagine that, uh, well, my name's Dave Hintz. I'm the pastor of Flint Hills Bible Church. Good friend of uh, Matt Cruz and... I was thinking about it, I kind of explained that Matt is probably the best listener I know. If you think about it, he's, I end up talking about me the whole time, and it's like, no wonder I love this relationship. But, uh, but Matt just kind of gets you going and talking about yourself, and so it was a real honor to, um, to speak on the topic, and, and he's definitely a man who practices what he preaches. He'll tell you he's the worst prayer person ever, but that actually, I, I feel like it belongs to me after that last sermon, so that's where I am. But I'm sure when you have a, have a conference like this, right, devoted to the topic of prayer, it would make sense to pray for the conference itself, right? So, I mean, what would be some things that, you know, we're in a smaller group here, that you would pray for with a conference like this? What would be some prayer requests that would come up? Lord, I pray that... The speakers would speak truth. The speakers would speak truth. That's right. No weird stuff from behind the pulpit, right? <laughs> what else would you pray for? Hearts to be drawn closer to God. Hearts to be drawn closer to God. These are great prayer requests. Yeah, what else? Yes. And our hearts would be open to learn. Hearts would be open to learn. And I would imagine that you might also pray for clear skies and clean roads, correct? That snowstorm, did you guys have a snowstorm here on, on Thursday? Uh, and we had one the week before, okay, yeah. Dustin, but the week before, right, <laughs> on that Thursday, how many inches did you guys get up? Four. Four inches, yeah, we, we clocked in about seven, right? And so you would pray that what happened that Thursday would not happen yesterday or today, right? Yeah, you know, we kind of sponsor a men's conference at our place. We, we shamelessly pray for the weather, right? <laughs> Lord, if it be your will... May the jet stream just kind of bow out to the east and just press the storm system over to Illinois, right? <laughs> Keep Missouri clean because we have people coming from there. Right? <laughs> may, may that low-pressure system stall over the Colorado Rockies, right? They like the snow there. They, they need it. They would appreciate it. Lord, just keep the weather clean, right? That's, that's what we are praying for because I think ultimately we know as much as maybe the Chinese fancy that they can control the weather, nobody controls the weather. We know that. We know that. Job, um, the book of Job, Elihu, is the only one of Job's counselors who was uncensored. He says this, By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable, habitable world. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. So if God is the one who determines the weather, and we pray for clear skies, uh, what happens when it snows? Perhaps there's some farmer in Newton who wants to fill his pond right before the spring. Yeah, and you have all these counter prayers and and... He would have his good reasons, and we'd submit, you know, thy will be done, because we are good Christians, and who are we to question the judgment of God? But it kind of begs the question, why, why pray for God to change the weather if he has already planned the weather according to his perfect plan? Uh, why pray for your grandmother's health if the Lord has already numbered her days? 
why pray for the, the next elections when God has already determined who he's going to appoint into leadership? Right? If God is, is sovereign, I mean, why, why pray? I mean, isn't that a question that you guys ask yourselves? I mean, when Tom Pennington went through all those reasons why we don't pray, I think that sometimes in the, in the back of our mind we think, God's already planned it all anyway, so I'm sure, you know, I'll just pray, Thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Kind of out of ideas after that, Lord, so you just do what you're going to do. I'm just going to pray, you just do what you're going to do. And, but when you look at, let's say, the scriptures and the larger narrative, I mean, how many times have you, you have Abraham with the famous prayer, right? And, and, and he's going to God like his prayer really matters. Or Moses goes to God. We're going to talk about that later on. Like his prayer really matters. Or, or Hezekiah, right? You have all these people who, who passionately pray like, the, like their prayer actually means something. It does something. It, it, it is, as Charles Spurgeon said, right? Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. And so here's the deal. I'm, I'm going to make this contention here that an understanding of God's power and sovereignty shouldn't detract from our prayers, but actually give us confidence in our prayer. Because we're actually praying to a God who can do anything that is unconstrained, so to speak. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the power of omnipotent prayer, prayer to a sovereign God, a prayer to a God who can do whatever he wants, and invites us to join that effort. And we're going to uh, kind of untangle this knot of why pray to a sovereign God. Okay, I realize this is a deep theological issue. Some of you guys might have some, some questions and stuff. I'll try to be available for that. Maybe we can have lunch together. Who knows? But just to tip my hand, okay, you'll find out. I believe that God is sovereign. You know, I believe that he is the one who controls all things. Everything is under his perfect plan, according to his plan, and he is at work in the universe. Okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to establish kind of three facets. One, God is sovereign. Two, man is responsible. And then number three, God uses human choices to accomplish his will. So let's talk about just the, this idea of the sovereignty of God in prayer. Now, some people will contend that our prayer has power because God's not necessarily sovereign, or perhaps they redefine the definition of sovereignty. They'll say that God decrees the end from the beginning, but it works like this. God sits back and watches time play out where people make all their free choices, right? And for a choice to be truly free, uh, they would say that your choice determines one or of two futures, right? If you choose this choice A, this future will happen. If you choose this choice B, this future will happen. And so everybody's able to make their own choices, and this future just kind of winds its way through time, and then it culminates with Jesus coming back. And, and God, in eternity past, looks at the movie and says, that's what I decree. Okay? And, and so they see that your choices matter, and that prayer is a choice that you make, and prayer actually alters the future. This is what one pastor says. Everything that God has ever that has ever been prayed for, of course, I mean every right thing, God has already purposed to do. He does nothing without consent. He has been hindered in his purpose by our lack of willingness. We learn his purposes and make them our prayers. We are giving him an opportunity to act. And he would actually later on say that some people in the lower world are not saved because they haven't been prayed for. Right? I mean, that's, that's an interesting thought. God doesn't act unless we give him permission with prayer. Now, that would make you pretty committed to prayer. But that's also a very scary world, and it's also at odds with how God reveals himself in Scripture. You see, God, he knows the future because he plans the future. And he is going to make the future that he planned happen. This is what we see in Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. 
declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish my purpose. Right, so he knows the future because he declares it. He says in Job uh, 14.5, since the days are determined and the number of his months is with you, I have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. He's basically saying, God knows how long you're going to live. Your days are numbered. You are invincible until your days expire. Psalm 139.16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet none of them were written, right? So your days are numbered. And you know that buck that you have in your sights? The days are numbered for that buck as well. Whether he lives or dies, whether or not you hit the shot, is determined by the Lord. Don't believe me? Saul, or Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The lifespan of a mosquito is measured by God. Right? He determines and decrees all life, all lifespans. He determines the end, decrees the end from the beginning. That is the scriptural teaching. We learn that uh, he also decrees who our president will be, who our governor will be, who our senators will be. Psalm, or I'm sorry, Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So why did Pharaoh refuse to let the, the people go? Well, he hardened his heart, and the Lord hardened his heart. They were both working together. We'll talk more about that later on. You also look at why did Jesus die? Well, according to Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so you look at even Jesus himself, and all that went into him being placed in Jerusalem at a certain time on the eve of, a, of, of the Passover celebration, which had symbolic significance. The fact that one of his own disciples would betray him. The fact that he was put into a kangaroo court by Caiaphas and wrongly convicted to death, and that Pilate violated his, his obligation to execute Roman justice to go ahead and have him crucified. All of that was orchestrated by God to fulfill numerous prophecies that were given by him in the Old Testament. Agreed? I mean, all of that was a definite plan of God. God had a plan, and he wasn't going to leave it to chance. He made sure that it happened. Why do people come to faith? Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying God, the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And then John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Ephesians 1, 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, I just downloaded a lot, right? And I know in a group this size, some of you might have some differences. You might contour it a different way. Some of you might just outright disagree with that. And, and, and this would be my challenge for you. I mean, those verses mean something, right? They mean something. So whatever you believe, harmonize them in a meaningful way into your theology. But... What it comes down to is the words of Psalm 135.6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. What it comes down to is the Lord is going to do whatever he does, right? God has free will. He's able to freely do whatever he wants to do, whatever is in accordance with the scripture, and he's going to carry out his plans even, even, if people resist it, he will get his way. Now this poses a, a problem. Uh, when people learn that God makes all these choices, and we will be subject to these choices and go along with it, does that make us robots? Further, if we didn't really have a choice in the matter, how can we be held responsible for that action? And how can God not be held responsible for that action? 
Um, now, there's an interesting musical that I was uh, that I watched when I was in college. I was in a um, kind of this dramatic interpretation class. It's not where I learned modern dance. It was an elective that had to be fulfilled. I had to, uh, you know, watch all the movies that KU. Uh, furnished or all the plays that Katie furnished that semester, and, and they showed Jesus Christ Superstar. Okay, now I'm not recommending this, but there is a very fascinating scene where Judas is watching Jesus be crucified, and he understands that Jesus is about to die, and he begins to put the pieces together that it was foretold that he would be the one who would betray Jesus to this fate. And as such, he would be the son of perdition and one who will be consigned to the hell of fire, to eternal judgment and damnation for the crime that he committed that was foretold by the Lord. And this is what he, what he sees. Now, I, I will not sing it. Okay? <laughs> Sorry to disappoint, but you would be, you'd be more disappointed if I did. Uh, my mind is in darkness now. <clears throat> my God, I am sick. I've been used. And you knew it the whole time. God, I'll never ever know why you chose me for your crime. Your foul bloody crime. You have murdered me. You have murdered me. Right? He's just doing what God determined him to do. And now he's being punished for it? Isn't the fact that God predetermined all these things, doesn't that make God the author of this crime? Right? That's, that's the objection. And that is why you have to look at God as not only sovereign, okay? God is also, um, humans are also responsible for the, for the actions that they choose. Both of them are taught in Scripture. I'll, I'll give you just a couple of examples. Um, you look at Saul. Right? Saul was appointed by God to be king of Israel. <clears throat> And he also knew in the predetermined plan of God that it ultimately would be David who would have the, uh, the reign that would last forever. But Saul had a fear of man problem. He openly disobeyed Samuel's instructions. And when he was caught, Samuel tells Saul this in, in 1 Samuel 15, 11, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Right? This was a genuine offer. Saul, if you would have done this, it would have been your progeny, and not David's. Didn't mention David here, but it would have been your progeny that would have reigned over Israel for all time. And yet you disobeyed. God also says, I regret that I made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. God didn't force Saul to do that. Saul freely chose to do so. Another example, whenever somebody rejects the gospel, it is because they choose to do so. They're responsible for their actions. In the words of Paul in Acts 17.30, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but he now commands all people everywhere to repent. So everyone on the face of this planet is called to repent and trust in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. If they fail to do it, it's because they are disobedient, not ignorant. Okay, so God holds people responsible for their sins. So we have like two pillars here, right? You have divine sovereignty, and then you have human responsibility. Um, the Bible teaches both. So how do you reconcile this? Well, God uses human choices to accomplish his will. Okay? God uses human choices to accomplish his will. One of the great examples of this is the story of Joseph. Right? What, are, what were the bad things that happened to Joseph? Do you guys remember? He has some jealous brothers. They didn't like the fact that he was bragging to them, right? If you want to learn about how to have your brothers hate you, just do what Joseph did. I had these dreams. You guys were all worshiping me. 
Yeah, my dad loves me more than you. I mean, can't you tell by my tunic? And so, they left him for dead. He was sold off to some slave traders, ended up in the house of Potiphar. He's blessing that house, and when Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, he does the right thing. Then he gets blamed for it, and then he gets sent to prison. And prison was not a pleasant place in Egypt at that time. While in prison, he has these visions and dreams, and he ministers to two men who are there. One gets decapitated, but one lives on, and forgets him and leaves him to languish in prison even a little bit longer. Eventually, He's elevated, he is brought to this high position, he's basically the, the governor of Egypt, Pharaoh's right-hand man, and his brothers come to him, not knowing that he is the one that they killed, and, and Joseph, I don't think he has fun with them, he probably tries to determine how contrite they are. But then he reveals himself, he blesses them, he rescues his entire family, they move from a, an impoverished Palestine, into Egypt, and it is there that they are preserved. Now, when their father, Israel, also known as Jacob, uh, passes away, the brothers are terrified. Because now, now Joseph is going to get his revenge. And this is what Joseph tells them. Genesis 50, 20-21. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. What you meant for evil, everything that you did, those were evil choices and evil actions. But God used your choices to bring about a good thing for this predetermined result is that you and your little ones and our progeny will survive. You look at that passage in Acts 2.23, and this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of God and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of men. And Peter would say in Acts 4.10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man he is standing before you as well. And so he says, on one hand, it was a predetermined plan that led to his crucifixion, but then he tells the audience, you crucified him. It's your fault. Okay, It is God using the decisions of men to accomplish his predetermined plan. And so, how does this even work out? And I, I think what really helps me to think through this is I think about the mechanism of decision-making. Right? When we make a choice, our choice is shaped by our desires. Okay, now I drove by a Brahms here, right? We have Brahms ice cream fans. Mm-hmm. It's cheap, it's wonderful, makes you thirsty, but it's awesome. <laughs> now when I go to Brahms, my flavor of choice is mint chocolate chip ice cream. You guys, you know, secretly, is that, no? Yeah, you are like my wife, okay? My, my wife hates mint chocolate chip ice cream. She thinks that mint and chocolate go together like chocolate and vinegar, right? <laughs> or beer flavor and mint. I mean, it just, it's like mint is for toothpaste and medicine, right? It's meant to sterilize, not appetize, right? It's weird. Now, just so you know, I still have it, and all my kids love mint chocolate chip ice cream, so we know. Yeah, they, you teach them well. But, uh, but what's interesting is, so when I choose mint chocolate chip ice cream, I do it because I, I like it. Now, my wife doesn't. So how is it that two normal people can have these radical, radically different ice cream flavors? Or, or, or no, I taste the ice cream flavors. But, but let's say I'm going with my wife and we decide to split something because I have this impulse to save money, right? You get that 48-ounce chocolate shake, right? Just, it's much cheaper than two smaller ones to get more ice cream that way. Uh, I won't get the mint chocolate chip shake. I'll get the chocolate one because she likes that and I like that. And you know, mint, chocolate, at least it has the chocolate. <laughs> and so my desire to save money and to share with my wife and have something mutually agreeable overrides my desire to just have mint chocolate chip ice cream at a higher price per ounce, okay? 
So do you see what I'm saying? Like there's all these, this decision-making matrix that we have is contingent on our desires. We choose according to our desires. Now, when you look at our inherent desires as a non-Christian, uh, they are shaped by our hearts. And what does the Bible say about the non-Christian heart? Well, Jeremiah 17, 9. My heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, the heart inclines us to make evil actions. Like as a non-Christian, I became a Christian my freshman year at the University of Kansas, but before that, I kind of did whatever I wanted to do. My, my sinful heart determined the music I listened to, the friends that I had, the activities I did on the weekend, the, um, yeah, the movies I would watch. Right, and all of that was to feed my sinful heart. And, you know, and I, I did all those things because I wanted to. I wanted to. And I didn't want these goody-two-shoe Christians telling me how to live my life, right? But when I became born again, a miracle happened. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And so I had a new heart, and that changed the friends that I had, the movies that I watched, the music I listened to, got into DC Talk, that was in their heyday, it was pretty awesome in the early 90s. And and you know, my sin, I, I looked at it in a different way, where my sin is what put my first love on the cross, right? Do you see what I'm talking about here? Like, the only, I can't change my heart. You can't change your heart. Only God can change a heart. But when God changed my heart, he changed my desires. And when my desires changed, my decisions changed. Does that make sense? So, we're all responsible for the decisions that we make. When Judas betrayed Jesus, he did so because he had a greedy heart. When Pilate went ahead and allowed Jesus to be crucified, he feared men. When the Caiaphas allowed Jesus to be crucified, sentenced him, it was because instead of trusting God by doing what is right, he thought that the only way to preserve Israel was by allowing a man to die for, to save the nation, right? They're all fueled by these desires. And God is able to take all of these things and work them out according to his good and perfect plan. In Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now this doesn't make evil good, but what it does teach is that God is able to use evil to accomplish his good purposes. He's able to use evil to accomplish his good purposes. And so let's go back to this subject of prayer. Okay, How does this work out when we pray? Now one of the great well, one of my favorite, I think one of the most insightful um, passages that address this uh, is in uh, Exodus 32. Okay, Exodus 32. And you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to camp out there. But kind of bring up to speed, right? Exodus is named after the Exodus. It's when God uh, liberated his people from the clutches of Egypt through a series of of ten miracles, well, not really miracles, ten judgments that were miraculous in nature. And then uh, he, he basically answers the question that the Pharaoh asked Moses, who is the Lord God that I should obey his voice? And God says, through Moses, I will show you. And in ten plagues, he judges the nation of Egypt that imprisoned and impoverished Israel. And then he delivers them through uh, the Red Sea, parting the waters. He delivers them from, uh, from various tribes that are attacking them. He gives them fresh water in the desert, manna from heaven. And so he's preserving them from all these, with all these miracles. And then he makes it very clear that I'm going to give you the promised land, and I'm going to be your God. You'll be a kingdom of priests. You will belong to me. And begins to forge a covenant with them. And so... They agree to the initial stipulations of the covenant, and then Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. 
and he is talking with the Lord, hearing the terms of the covenant, and he's giving him all of these rules and regulations so that they can be a holy nation. And what is going down at the foot of Mount Sinai? You know, Moses has been up there for quite a long time. What? We need to worship something. And so they take all that gold, they throw it in the fire, and out comes this golden calf. And they put it up on a pedestal, and Moses says, Okay, this is the Lord your God who brought him out of Egypt. Brought you out of Egypt. This is golden calf over here. And so they all worship in pretty profane and blasphemous ways. I mean, it is quite a picture. And the Lord takes notice of this and points it out to Moses in Exodus 32, 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, right? <laughs> it's kind of like when my wife says, Your son did this. <laughs> <laughs> your son did this. They have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may not burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now, if you're Moses, you know, God, they are kind of a pain in the neck. <laughs> and my life would be easier for you to wipe them out. And uh, so you're going to make me a great nation, huh? Hmm. <laughs> that sounds pretty uh, intriguing. <laughs> But you don't need to wipe them all out. I mean, I'm kind of fond of Aaron and my wife, but no. You know, this tribe over here, let them go, right? It, it's, that's what he could have said. In our lesser moments, we might have said the same thing. But how does Moses respond to this threat that the Lord is giving? Verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord... Why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. God, don't give the Egyptians the satisfaction of seeing your people burn in the wilderness. Don't let them say of you that the only reason why you <coughs> delivered them from Egypt is so that you can take them into the desert and then kill them all. It would be like the Allies rescuing uh, a concentration camp full of Jews and leading them to safety. And then in the, in the process, the Jews revolt and commit treason. And then the Allies just slaughter all the Jews. The Nazis would say, see, you're no better than us, and they all deserved it. But Moses is appealing to God's character and God's plan and just say, Lord, it's in your interest and for your glory, spare their lives. And he goes on to say, in verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, right? <coughs> remember how it's being offered that I'll make you the new progenitor? And you have the line from Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all of this land that I have promised to you, I'll give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. He invokes the past promises that he made. Lord, in light of your character, don't do this thing. And what's the response? This is amazing. Verse 14. And the Lord relented, from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So did the Lord change his mind? Did he change his mind? Well, there's a little footnote I want to add to this. Jeremiah 18, 6 through 10. This is a little explanation 
that the Lord gives that should be a little like footnote on every one of his judgments. Can I not, this is Jeremiah 18, 6 through 10, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does, not, if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I promise to bless it. So if a nation repents, like in Jonah with the Ninevites, according to this passage, God can change his mind. Now, is he really changing his mind? He's not changing his mind. That is something that's tagged on to every single pronouncement of judgment. And so what Moses does is he intercedes on behalf of the nation of Israel. What you see is Moses changing and strategically playing and praying. It's not God who changed, it's really Moses who did. Moses was honestly put to the test and he passed. And God used Moses' prayer so that Moses, right, who often complained about the people complaining to him, would see that their preservation is ultimately for the glory of God. See, these prayers allow Moses to participate, to be a part of God's plan for the preservation of Israel. Theologian D.A. Carson writes, God expects to be pleaded with. He expects godly believers to intercede with him. Their intercession is his appointed means for bringing about his relenting. If they fail in this respect, then he does not relent and his wrath is poured out. Right? If they're not prayed for, then they will perish. Now, how does that work? Does this mean that our prayers alter his sovereign plan? Well, one of the, I think one of the analogies I think that will be helpful in this is, you know, God, no one could come to Christ unless God changes their heart, right? And that is something that God works in their heart to make sure it happens and everyone where he begins that process that process will end now does that mean that we never share the gospel well according to Paul in Romans 10 14 and 15 how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless someone is sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news no one can come to Christ unless the gospel is preached to them. No one. That has to happen. There are certain things that are happening that will not happen unless they are prayed into existence. Prayer is the means by which God will accomplish his will, just like preaching the gospel is the means by which he will save his people. Now what happens if you don't pray? Does that mean that all hope is lost? Well, I think about Esther 4.14. Mordecai tells Esther, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Right? If, if you don't intercede here, somebody else will. If you don't pray this into existence, God will will prompt another person to pray it into existence. Right? Prayer is the means by which God works. It allows you to be a participant. Now, some people might might look at this and and still be troubled because of this whole issue of free will. It doesn't seem like I'm really free to do anything. I'm just kind of going along with the current of God's plan. But I want you to think about what would your prayer life be like if people had complete free will? They were able to make a free choice to choose one of two options, and God will not overcome their free will. You have a wayward son. You have a wayward grandchild. 
and you are desperate for their salvation. So you pray, Lord, save my granddaughter. And he replies, well, I can't really do that because of her free will. Okay, all right. Lord, bring somebody into her life that will share the gospel with her. You know, I've been asking around and prompting people, convicting people, but no one seems to want to do it. They're all resisting that. Uh, okay, um, Lord, I just pray that her fiancé will dump her so that she is just broken. Well, the fiancé doesn't want to dump her. <laughs> um, well, can, can you give her cancer? You know, Satan is the one who kind of imparts all these diseases, and after the incident with Job, he's kind of on to my tricks. So I'm going to have to back off there. Okay. Um, well, what, what, what can you do? Well, I'll tell you what. Make me content. You know, I can't really violate your free will there. You're the one who's going to have to become content. What are you asking me for? So, what can I pray for? Well, I, I can do health and, and the weather as long as not too many farmers are praying against you know, what I'm <laughs> hoping to do. Right? I mean, so when you look at the alternative, right, if you pray for somebody's salvation, what exactly are you hoping God will do? Aren't you hoping that God would change their heart? Because unless God invades and changes their heart, they're not going to be transformed. And, and here's the deal. The fact that you are praying for that, that says something. Number one, God has chosen you from eternity past to be one of his children. He has secured your salvation so that you are in a living relationship with him. You are a priest, so to speak, right? We are a kingdom of priests for this world. And you are praying to this person who God has sovereignly put in your life. Of all of the daughters you can have, you have her. And you have been inclined to pray for her. You are praying to a God who is sovereign, who can orchestrate all things. He can cause that fiancé to dump her. He can give her. He can do anything at his disposal because he does as he chooses. And God has laid on your heart to pray for this person. Now, that's amazing. Anytime the Lord lays somebody on your heart and you pray for them, it's like, the Lord is doing something here. And the fact that you prayed means that he will receive all the glory when it's done. Right, see, prayer, prayer is more than just changing you and just helping you be content. It is the means that he uses to allow you to participate in the great plans that he has uh, for the universe. I mean, let's say you have a, a child, or we'll go grandchild, and, and they, they, want a, they want a bike. Now, there's a couple ways you can give it to them, right? You could just, <clears throat> harvest was really good this year, here's your bike, have fun. Or, you can give them the means of purchasing a bike. If you mow our lawn ten times, we'll go ahead and get you the bike. Now, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you the lawnmower, give the gas, show you how to use it. You do it ten times, then we'll go and get the bike. Under which situation would the grandchild or child value the bike more? The second, right? Right, because they're participating in it. Right, so, so when God has redeemed the church, he didn't necessarily redeem a bunch of bystanders so that we could just watch him do everything. He, he has actually re, redeemed us so that we can be active participants in the process of him doing his great work in the world. And if God wasn't sovereign, there'd be no point in all that because he would be limited by our choices instead of using his people to have a share in his exercise of divine omnipotence on this universe. So why pray to a God who's sovereign? Because he is sovereign. And when you pray to a sovereign God, your, your prayers have omnipotent potential. So let me pray real quickly, and then we've got about five minutes for questions. And if I don't know it, I'll just make Andrew answer them for me. <laughs> well, Father, I, I do thank you for these brothers and sisters, and I pray that this would have been helpful. That it is, um, it is an amazing thing that we can pray to, to you as our sovereign Lord. And 
I pray that we will be encouraged to go to you often to do works that we cannot do, to exercise your sovereignty, to redeem the lost, build the church, uh, even some of the mundane things like help us uh, to provide for our families and to strengthen our marriages. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I'm on the chopping block. Questions? About this or any other topic? <laughs> Responsibility. Just abbreviate here. I mean, they both kind of end up here, right? I think the greater spirit, scriptural evidence that we see really focuses on the sovereignty of God. But there is another kind of a, a thinner pillar of human responsibility and how they kind of all mix together. Um, ultimately, there is some mystery. But you look at, let's say, Pharaoh, right? Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? The Lord did, and Pharaoh did. But the Lord had ten, ten judgments to give. <laughs> he had ten judgments. He wanted to get through all ten of them because they're all indictments of the Egyptian gods. And he hardened the heart so that he can get through them all. So, yeah, that's... Um, yeah, it's called uh, compatibilism, right? Where our wills work with God's will. And it's uh, there is a mystery to all how that happens, but if you go far enough, you can at least have some closure to it. A good question. Yeah. Well, going back a little bit to Moses and your example of praying for a grandchild mm -hmm. that's not walking, and you pray that something drastic happens. Yeah. Is that correct, or are we are we supposed to be like Moses, afraid that God will change his mind and not um, bring yeah. out a severe judgment on that person yeah. to, to make them repent? And sometimes they don't repent at all. Yeah. Well, I think about the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 6, where you hand somebody over to the judgment of Satan, they get their drink, they get the fill of the world, and they're rejected. Mm -hmm. Or um, Hebrews chapter 12, the discipline of the Lord comes upon them where 
or, or even let's say the prodigal son, right, where he lost everything and was feeding bean pods to, to pigs, yet was humiliated. So sometimes we do that. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but, um, you know, a lot of times I don't want my, I wouldn't want my sinning son to be fat and happy and, you know, having a wonderful life on his way to hell. I would hope that there would be some disruption to it. You know, there's just different. I think you can pray consistent with Scripture with that, and that's not a bad prayer request. Um, I wouldn't tell them. I'm just praying that God will judge you. By <laughs> so, gee, thanks. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, a lot of times, if somebody's wayward, you, it's like you just open the book and you just, uh, I'll pray this, pray this, pray this. I mean, towards the end result. But I think what that does is uh, it keeps you engaged more. Like we could just say, save my grandson. Save my grandson. There. Okay. I just prayed it, so you do what you do. As opposed to what you see with Moses. Like Moses is really reasoning with God, isn't he? He's praying in light of his character, his promises. And you know, part of prayer is just having that conversation with the Lord. And reasoning with him, appealing to him, giving him all the reasons why I think this is a good idea, even with a submissive posture, but that, that kind of draws you closer into even into fellowship, and I think even gives you like spiritual eyes to, to see what may be going on and, and how you can pray or participate in these, <coughs> these areas. But that's a good question. But yeah, if you're praying for discipline or whatever, you may not want to tell them, but and sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. I'm, I'm often surprised. It's like, how much more broken do you need to be before you finally get it? Right? Well, I think we just uh, finished up. So you guys could go to your next one. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Do you need anything? Maybe a bottle of water. Okay, I'll go find one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, stride. Thanks. Good job packing all it in the 50 quick minutes of the cliff notes. The depths of that. Yeah, I I just kind of scratched the surface. How are you doing? How was um? These are well. These are going good. Good. Are you here by yourself or are you with a Just me. You love the conferences, don't you? Just anything to kind of keep you. I enjoy it. They kind of, everyone is kind of another boost of, I don't know, just good. Yeah. The fellowship of the pastors especially just keeps me pumped up. Yeah. And just to be able to sit and listen. I love that story about the game hunter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Our wild game feast. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. We did it. Yeah. See you guys. Thank you.